Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be talking about the resurrection of the Savior Jesus Christ. Up until his ascension. So we'll start on that Sunday morning where the angels open the tomb and the women discover it, and we'll go all the way till his ascension and his ministry in Jerusalem comes to an end and he's now headed to America. And we got that story last year in the Book of Mormon. Reading in Matthew chapter 28, verse 1. In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn towards the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became his dead men. And the angel answered and said to the women, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly, and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall ye see him. Lo, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy, and did run to bring his disciples' word. So uh, stones closing tombs were usually extremely heavy and disc-shaped, so rolling it back single-handedly and sitting on it underlines superhuman strength of this angel. Jewish people normally expected angels to be clothed in white. Jewish apocalyptic literature sometimes portrayed angels or other figures with superhuman radiance. So the Joseph Smith translation of Matthew 28 indicates that there were angels, plural, that were there. So we've got a couple angels, at least in the Joseph Smith translation, even though here in Matthew it says that there was one angel. I like this also with the idea that in the mouth of two or three witnesses shall the word be established. So now we're going to go from Matthew 28 to John chapter 20. So notice it was a group of women. There was a group of women that came first thing in the morning, and their intention was to properly prepare his body for burial. That's when they discover the empty tomb. These women run back, and they tell Peter and John that the tomb's been opened. And Peter and John run with Mary. Mary Magdalene is going to come back. So John chapter 20 We have Peter and John running. Verse 3, Peter therefore went forth and that other disciple and came to the sepulcher. So they ran both together and the other disciple did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulcher. But he doesn't go in, John 19, 5. And he stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. I think that was a show of hierarchical authority. Peter's keys. I think that was a show of respect for the senior apostle who needs to enter the tomb first. So then cometh Simon Peter following him and went into the sepulcher and seeth the linen clothes lie and the napkin that was about his head not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped altogether in a place by itself." 
Then went in also that other disciple, which came first to the sepulcher. And then this fascinating phrase, he saw and believed. He saw the way the linen clothes were arranged, and he knew that his body had not been stolen. He knew he was resurrected. I don't know how the linen clothes were raised. Either it was like a body just came out of them and they just fell into place in the shape they were, undisturbed, or, and here's my suspicion, Jesus arose, took them off, and neatly folded them. And every time I return from a temple session and undress, I think of that. I think of Jesus standing up and very tenderly taking off his burial clothing and neatly folding it and leaving it there for them to see. Whatever it was, John took one look at the clothing and knew his body had not been taken, that he had risen from the dead. I really like that word in verse 8, episteosin. It's believed in the English. It says he saw and believed. It comes from pistis, that word that is a light word in the book of John. It's a word that's a theme word that's repeated throughout. One of the things that John is emphasizing is that you must have this reciprocal trust. It's translated as faith or belief in the English, but the word in the Greek denotes a deep and abiding trust. The symbol of that word is Peter grasping Jesus's hand when he's on the water. The symbol of the handshake or those two hands clasping is the root symbol in the Greek culture for that word. And so if you have that trust in Jesus, that's the victory. That's what John is striving for. Uh, Everything in John's narrative at the end, he'll say this over and over again, blessed are those that do not see, but have this belief. I, I know the English word is belief. But the word denotes deep and abiding trust. Now, I don't think they fully expected to see him. I, it, remember, a resurrection had never occurred. I think John knew that Jesus wasn't there and that he was gone. And he wasn't gone because they stole his body. But I don't think they expected to see him in bodily form. I don't know what they knew, but the very next verse says, for as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. And so they went home. Everyone but Mary, she seems to be the most distraught, and she can't leave. And what's about to happen is one of the most beautiful scenes in all of Scripture. Verse 11, but Mary stood without at the sepulcher weeping. She was so heartbroken that he's gone. As she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher. And saw two angels in white, one at the head and one at the feet, where Jesus had lain. And they say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? And she just simply says, Because they have taken away my Lord. And I don't know if the they here is bad guys have taken him away and done something bad, or good guys, angels perhaps. 
I don't know what she meant by that, but they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. And so she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing and knew not that it was Jesus. I'm guessing her tear-filled eyes and her just distraught nature didn't allow her to process everything. She, supposing him to be the gardener, said unto him, Sir, if thou hast borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Just as a side note on the gardener, in Hebrew thought, the idea that God made man and Adam and Eve were here to dress and to keep the garden, the ultimate expression of fulfilling God's will is to be a gardener, to be one that keeps the garden beautiful. And so in essence, Jesus is the quintessential, the ultimate creation of man. As the gardener, we have Jesus in a garden as the cosmic king. This is right in line with ancient Hebrew thought as far as the ultimate purpose of man. Jesus is the embodiment of that going all the way back to the to the oldest texts. Now, I know he's not the gardener here. She's assuming he is. But what I'm trying to say is, no, he is the gardener. And she didn't get that. And she's sitting there in agony and in pain. And many of you know that agony, whether it's the loss of someone you love or a broken life or the shards of a life having fall to the ground all around you whether it's a child who's gone astray, all of you know that agony, and Mary is feeling that. Now, this absolutely beautiful scene is beyond anything else in Scripture, in my opinion. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said unto him, Sir, if thou hast borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. And then Jesus utters what I think is the most beautiful word that he ever uttered. He simply says, Mary. And notice what it says in the rest of verse 16. She turned herself. She turned from an empty tomb to a living Christ. She turned from pain and anguish and heartbreak to joy and resurrection and new life. She turned and there he was. He was not hanging on a cross. He wasn't a dead body in a sepulcher. He wasn't in pain in a garden. There he was, resurrected. And I am positive, beaming from ear to ear with happiness and joy. President Hinckley taught, here was the greatest miracle of human history. Early he had told them, I am the resurrection and the life. But they had not understood. Now they knew. He died in misery and pain and loneliness, and now on the third day he arose in power and beauty and life, the first fruits of them that slept, the assurance for men of all ages that, as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. On Calvary, he was the dying Jesus. From the tomb, 
he emerged the living Christ. The cross had been the bitter fruit of Judas's betrayal, the summary of Peter's denial. The empty tomb now became the testimony of his divinity, the assurance of eternal life, the answer to Job's unanswered question. If a man dies, will he live again? And clearly right here, the first person to see Jesus is Mary, and she knows the answer to the great question of the ages. And she's standing in front of Jesus. She probably sees him and immediately starts to weep. Now allow me to share something very personal that helps me understand that significant moment, helps me feel it. When I was 16 years old, I stayed after school one day at basketball practice. I had recently made the basketball team. Practice was over, and we were in the locker room, and the coach was talking to us, and in burst my neighbor. And we all thought that was odd because he didn't have a son on the team, but he was pale as a ghost, and we all knew that something was wrong. He asked to speak to the coach, and we all had that moment. Please let it not be me. We all knew something major was wrong. The coach came back, pale as a ghost, and looked right at me and pointed at me and said, Bryce, you need to go talk to him. And I knew that my life would never be the same again. I went out and my neighbor sent me home. He said, you just need to go home. Grab your things and just go home. Something's happened at home. Wouldn't tell me. As I pulled into my house, there was a police car, an ambulance, and the house was filled with neighbors. As soon as I walked in, I could hear them whispering that I was home, and then pretty soon my dad came out and found me and pulled me outside and told me that my brother was dead. He gave me the circumstances, but all I heard was, your brother is dead. My brother had stayed home to babysit our two youngest siblings while my mom and my older sister went out to prepare Thanksgiving dinner. The next day was Thanksgiving. My younger sister, who didn't have basketball practice, was the first one home, found him, tried to revive him with CPR to no avail, called my dad. My dad was the second person home. I was the third. That meant I was there when my mom came home. I was there when my mother found out that her son was dead. I will never forget those soul-piercing cries that no son wants to hear his mother utter. It emptied my soul to watch my mother so bitterly hurt. The next few days, I watched her weep till she could weep no more. Over the years, I watched that pain continue as his friends went on missions. My mom bought them each a tie and asked them to wear it on the mission field as if maybe her son could maybe participate a little bit as a mission. She watched all of his friends get married, and once again, that pain would just return. I have watched that dear woman suffer over the years because of the loss of her son. Now, allow me to just share a picture I have in my mind that is a hope for a day that's coming. Hasn't happened, but this is my hope for a day that's coming. I can picture my mom visiting the cemetery as she has done so many times. 
But this time, something's different. In my vision, in my mind, here's how I see this panning out. She pulls into the cemetery and notices that there's been some vandalism. But not just any old vandalism. She notices that some of the caskets have been dug up. And horrified, she rushes to her son's casket. And sure enough, it's one of the ones that has been dug up. And all of the pain of all of the years comes back. And now she's dealing with the thought that now the body's been taken. Now the body's not even there. How could someone do this? She assumes that someone as an act of vandalism or something has taken this body. And she weeps and all the pain comes back. And as she's sitting there at that empty casket weeping, in my mind's eye, I can picture someone approaching from behind and saying to this heartbroken woman, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? I can picture my mom saying, Do you know where they took my son? Do you know who did this? Do you know where they have laid him? I will take him away. And then in this, my vision of this, my hope for the future, I can hear him say one word that changes all of eternity. He simply says, Mom. And she turns from an empty casket. She turns from all these years of pain and anguish and heartbreak. And there he is alive, happy, filled with joy. If you could feel what that woman would feel in that moment, that's the spirit of the resurrection. And Mike and I have talked about a lot of doctrines over the years, but this is the crowning doctrine that Jesus came to break the bands of death. And because of that, everyone you love will come forth out of that tomb. And every pain that you have felt at their loss, every heartbreak, we will turn. And now if in that moment, if in my vision of the future, when my mom turns... And those to embrace. If suddenly Jesus were there, what would my mom say? What would she do? What would you do if this were your story? And that is my invitation that we all feel that way because he came forth and burst the bands of death. This is the moment of moments. And that is his gift to all of us a resurrected, pain-free body. The Savior has conquered our enemies, and the greatest of our enemies is death. When you compare the problems that it would have been like to live in the first century and how they wanted Rome to be gone, you know what? Rome is nothing compared to death. Jesus conquered the greatest enemy of all, and that's what he came to do. And in the midst of that image of seeing him, we read this. She turned herself and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. Jesus said to her, 
touch me not, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. The Greek renders it thus, memu aptu, which is basically stop clinging to me or stop holding me. Joseph Smith in the Joseph Smith translation, I think, gives a good rendition here where it reads, hold me not. The image is that she's embracing him. This is the first mortal to see the resurrected Lord that we have in the accounts. He says right after that, for I am not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my father and your father and to my God and your God. What does that mean? And I certainly don't know. I'm just kind of exploring some of these different interpretive lenses. This could be something symbolic. What if Jesus is using Mary's desire to touch him as a symbolic gesture of the transition from his physical presence on earth to his spiritual presence in heaven? He's essentially telling her in one way of reading this to let go of the mortal earthly Jesus and embrace the heavenly one. Another option, perhaps this is a prohibition against touching the divine. There is some stuff in the Old Testament that is prohibitive of touching divine things. I'm basically quoting Exodus 19, 12, and 13 here. In those texts, we read this, Whoever toucheth the mount shall surely be put to death. There shall not a hand touch it, but it shall surely be stoned. That's kind of reading the the prohibition against touching heavenly things in Exodus 19. My problem with that interpretation is that many individuals touch Jesus. Obviously, Mary is touching him, and obviously, Thomas is going to quote, thrust his hands into his side. So I don't know if that really works, but it could have something to do with the divine presence. Another option is that what if this is interpreted through the lens of ascent? What if Jesus has an ascent to go on? If you remember, we've talked about this in previous podcasts. The word for heaven is often plural, meaning heavens in the plural, and that it can be conceived this way, that Jesus goes through a series of ascents unto his father, and he has not quite ascended to that level to where he's with his father. And he's telling Mary in verse 17, that's where I'm going. I'm going to do that, and I'm going to descend or come back to the mortal sphere to be a living witness so the apostles can see me. I think that I'm just open to this idea because it seems that Jesus is speaking about an esoteric ascent. Now, we read about some of that in a, in a lot of the literature. We've referred to it before. If you want details, go to the show notes. There's a lot of information on this idea, and it's discussed in John's narrative. A lot of times it's oblique, but I think John's just kind of assuming that his readers are in on this and that they get this. And then the last thing is, what if this is a literary device, that this is a device used by the author of John to emphasize a new relationship between Jesus and his disciples or his followers. In other words, Jesus is now no longer as a mortal who is subject to death, but as a resurrected being in a different relationship with mortals. Elder Talmadge wrote this, 
One may wonder why Jesus had forbidden Mary to touch him, and then, so soon after, had permitted other women to hold him by the feet as they bowed in reverence. We may assume that Mary's emotional approach had been prompted more by a feeling of personal, yet holy affection, than by an impulse of devotional worship, such as the other women evinced. Though the resurrected Christ manifested the same friendly and intimate regard as he had shown in the mortal state towards those with whom he had been closely associated, he was no longer one of them in the literal sense. There was about him a divine dignity that forbade personal familiarity. To Mary Magdalene, Christ had said, "'Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father.'" If the second clause were spoken in explanation of the first, we have to infer that no human hand was to be permitted to touch the Lord's resurrected and immortalized body until after he had presented himself to his father. It appears reasonable and probable that between Mary's impulsive attempt to touch the Lord and the action of the other women who held him by the feet as they bowed in worshipful reverence, Christ did ascend to the Father and later he returned to earth to continue his ministry in the resurrected state. That's James E. Talmadge. I like it. I think that's a great quote. I also would note this, that that image of the embrace, as we read in John 20, verse 17, is rooted in atonement theology. The embrace is the image of the atonement. So however you read it, I think it's beautiful. And I do believe that the people who follow Jesus will one day be able to have a personal experience with the master and thank him for doing what he did to fix broken things, to fulfill the vision that Bryce sees in his mind's eye as he views the reunification of his parents with his brother. This is really what it's all about. And Mary must have a special relationship with Jesus, for she is the first witness, the apostle to the apostles. She is the one that is sent to the apostles. So she goes and tells them. We read this in verse 18. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. And so she does. She witnesses to the apostles. Now, Mike, I think we need to insert one possible moment here that sure needs some attention. In Matthew's account, as she runs back to tell the disciples, notice verse 9. As they, I think this is the women, as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, all hail. And they came and held him by the feet and worshiped him. They are on the way to tell the disciples when Jesus met them. So maybe that whole group of women saw him long before anyone else did. And I think that goes back to what you were talking about in our last podcast, Mike, about the special relationship that Christ had with women and the value that he saw in them. Perhaps it wasn't just Mary, the first witness. Maybe it was several of the women who saw him before the disciples did. And I think it depends just on which gospel you read. I am a big fan of reading the gospel as a standalone. I also like the idea, personally, of just reading it in one sitting, meaning sit down with the gospel of Mark and just read it. To me, it just brings about a special feeling when you just read the account and then let the Spirit kind of work on you as you read it. 
Now, there's no question where he went next. Even though the text really doesn't show it, we have to infer it by some passages. Luke, after that whole story about the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, they run back to Jerusalem and tell the twelve. And when they get there, in Luke 24, verse 34, the Lord is risen indeed and hath appeared to Simon. So Peter saw him next. And then in Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in trying to establish the many witnesses of the resurrection, Paul starts with, verse 5, he was seen of Cephas, that's Peter, and then of the twelve. So Paul and Luke seem to distinguish the fact that after Mary and perhaps after the other women, the first to see him was the chief apostle the key holder on earth, the one that will now represent him on earth to men. So Peter saw him next, and we don't have that account. And that was probably a very, now carry on the kingdom, take this forward type of a meeting. So after that visit with Peter, the chief apostle, he then visits the rest of the Quorum of the Twelve, absent Judas. Judas won't necessarily feel the nail marks in his hands because Judas is gone. But the rest of the Twelve will feel those nail marks. My favorite account of Jesus appearing to the Twelve, this is just my personal preference, is Luke 24. I just, this is just my favorite. So here it is, Luke 24, 36. And as they thus spake, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them, and he said to them, Peace be unto you. But they were terrified and affrighted, and supposed that they had seen a spirit. And he said unto them, Why are ye troubled, and why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones, as ye see me have." And when he had thus spoken, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they yet believed not for joy and wondered, he said unto them, Have ye here any meat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and a honeycomb, and he took it and did eat before them. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. And he said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, and ye are witnesses of these things. Now, I like this for so many reasons. One of the reasons is because it really shows us that, at least from this account in Luke, that the spirit and the body resemble each other. I also like this in the sense of they're looking at it and they just can't believe it. And so he says, hey, go into the pantry and bring me some food. There were some people in early Christianity that struggled with this idea and they had this view that matter was bad and that God was not composed of matter. But here we have a resurrected being with a physical material body 
eating physical material food. And so as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, I would say that we do stand in an interesting position where we believe this, we take it literally, and we believe in a literal resurrection and in a literal embodied God, that God the Father and God the Son are literal resurrected material beings. And why is that important? I think it's important because it helps us to reverence the body, but it also gives us hope for a future where we will be embodied resurrected beings with that same sociality that exists in the next life that exists here in this life. And Jesus is showing that to his apostles. And I believe this. He doesn't say it here in Luke, but I believe that he's saying to them, or he did say to them, hey, write this down. This is important. This is the expectation of those that believe in Christ. In fact, later Paul will say, if this doesn't happen, then our faith is in vain. So this is a linchpin in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This idea of a literal embodied resurrection is crucial to the faith of those that believe in Jesus. Now, one of them wasn't there. John tells us in chapter 20, but Thomas, one of the 12, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. And when he comes back, they say to him, we have seen the Lord. But he, Thomas, said unto them, except I see in his hands the prince of nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, I think we should soften that because I don't think Thomas was that extreme, but we'll wait and see someday. After eight days, again, his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Now this next verse, I think, is for you and I. I was not there then. I would love to have been there and to have felt the nail marks in his hands. Jesus then says to Thomas about all of us, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet believe. I think the calling card of a disciple of Christ is I believe in that literal resurrection. I believe he has risen again and that his testimony sealed his teachings as true because he rose from the dead. Everything that he said, everything that he did is true. I love that statement to Thomas because I think he's referring to all of the rest of us who weren't there but still believe My faith is built on a core belief that Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead. And that rising from the dead not only gave birth to a new body of Christ, but that rising from the dead gave birth to everything else in the gospel. C.S. Lewis will say, I believe in Christ like I believe that the Son is risen, not only because I can see it, but by it I can see everything else more clearly. In other words, the resurrection of Christ is what gives birth to everything else in our faith, and we can see everything else more clearly because of that resurrection. 
you know, Bryce, everything you're saying here about how this is not just to Thomas, but this is to us, reminds me of the discussion that we had back when we talked about John chapter 1. At the end of John chapter 1, in verse 51, we read, Verily I say unto you, Hereafter ye shall see the heavens open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. And that you, you being the individuals that will see the heavens open, is second person plural. It's all of us. We, the readers of the gospel of John, John begins and ends with that message that it's to us. And I think that's so beautiful and so important. Now, he also appears to many others. So let's throw in some of these wonderful little stories about Jesus appearing to others. Yeah. Now, I know Luke 24, 13 is before the account we just read where he's talking to his disciples, and I'm not going to say whether it's before or after, I don't know, but we do see Jesus appearing to other individuals in this story, and I really like it. We read in verse 13, behold, two of them went the same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem, about threescore furlongs. So right away, I'm just going to say, okay, what's a furlong? What's going on? And this is, it doesn't even say furlong in the Greek. It's a stadia. It's about seven miles. So there's this place called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. Now, we don't know where this is. The exact site is unknown. So they're going about seven miles to this place called Emmaus, and they talked together of all these things that had happened. And it came to pass while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus drew near and went with them. But their eyes were holden that they should not know him. 16a, footnote 16a there says that their eyes were restrained, that they could not know who he was. Now, we don't know the name of one of the individuals, but one of them we do know. That's in verse 18. It says, one of them whose name was Cleopas, and Cleopas starts to speak to Jesus. As Jesus walks with them on this seven-mile journey to Emmaus, Cleopas and another unnamed disciple have this communication with Jesus back and forth. Now, there is some tradition that indicates that this Cleopas is the brother of Joseph, the man who marries Mary, who is the mother of Jesus. So in that regard, he would be Jesus's uncle, the brother-in-law to Mary. And there is some indication that perhaps that the other disciple with Cleopas is his wife, and her name is Mary, and the reference to this is John 19.25, that Mary, who is the wife of Cleopas, is there at the foot of the cross with the other Mary and other individuals watching Jesus lay down his life for our sins, and that she's there as a witness of his death. And so if that is the case, we have another woman who is a witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Back to the text. And he said unto them, What manner of communications are these that you have one to another as you walk and are sad? And one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered and said, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem, and hast not known the things which are come to pass there in these days? And he said unto them, What things? And they said unto him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people." And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. Notice the word but. But we trusted that it would be he that would redeem Israel. They seem to suggest that it didn't happen. What they expected Jesus to do didn't happen. 
And I wonder how prevailing that notion was. Could the Quorum of the Twelve have thought that? Did the other disciples think that? Maybe that's what Peter was referring to when he said, I go a-fishing. Maybe they all expected that, well, it didn't happen, Israel wasn't redeemed, so let's move on. They didn't grasp what Christ was really going to conquer. And so watch what he does. And beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. Verse 22, Yea, and certain women also of our company made us astonished, which were early at the sepulcher. And when they found not his body, they came, saying that they had seen a vision of angels, which said that he was alive. And certain of them which were with us went to the sepulcher and found it, even as the women had said, but they saw him not. Then he said unto them, O fools. Now I just have to time out here. The Greek does not render moroi, which is the common Greek indication for a fool. The rendering here in the Greek would not denote fool, in my opinion. In the footnote right there, 25a, unwise is a better translation. He's not calling them the moroi. He's basically saying there are those that can't perceive. I think that's a better way. My translation of this would be, oh, you guys you're not perceiving it. You're not catching it. And by the way, that's a common description of many people that are following Jesus in the gospels. They're just not catching it. He continues, oh, you that are hard to catch it, verse 25, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And by the way, can I just throw myself in there? I am slow to catch stuff. I am with these guys. I guess my point is, this is me on the road to Emmaus, and the Savior looking at me and saying, oh, Mike, you are so slow to perceive. And I say to him, help me perceive. Help me. He continues, verse 26, ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he, meaning Jesus, expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So now what are we doing? We are rereading the Hebrew Bible with fresh eyes. And if you think about it, that's what the Book of Mormon does. The Book of Mormon invites us to reread the Bible through the lens of the Book of Mormon. And if we do with fresh eyes, we will see things. But let's be honest, <laughs> we are also slow to catch on. So what do we need? I think we need repetition, and we need to be patient, and we need to keep going. Back to the text, verse 28. They drew nigh to the village whither they went, and he made as though he would have gone further. But they constrained him and said, Abide with us, for it is towards evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to tarry with them. And as it came to pass, as he sat at meat with them and took bread and blessed it and break and gave it to them, their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished out of their sight. And they said one to another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way, and while he opened to us the scriptures? To me, Emmaus represents a symbol of our spiritual journey or pilgrimage. The two disciples on the road to Emmaus were initially discouraged and pretty much disillusioned after hearing about Jesus' crucifixion, but their encounter with him transform their lives. This metaphorical journey from doubt to belief, from despair to hope, from darkness to light is my journey. You see, we are all on the road to Emmaus. 
And I'm actually okay that we don't know the site of the place. I know that some critics say things like, well, we don't know the site of where Emmaus is, so maybe it didn't exist. Um, I'm okay with this being literal. I'm okay with this being figurative. And maybe the figurative is don't think it's that one place. It's every place. Emmaus is all of our journeys. And so maybe that's why we don't know it, is so that we don't limit it to a single place and say, this is where that happened. Yeah. I really see Emmaus also as a symbol of the sacrament table, where I get to share a meal with Jesus, and I get to look at my life and the scriptures and my relationships with fresh eyes. I also see this as a symbol of community and belonging. I have doubts from time to time. Everyone I know from time to time is discouraged, or they have doubts, or they're wondering, am I even going in the right direction? And so we all need to remember Jesus to have his spirit to be with us. And so in this sense, Emmaus can kind of represent a place of community and solidarity, an invitation for us to have communion with the saints of God and to rest from our troubles of this challenging world. But the road there is a place where we get to talk, where we get to be together and just listen to each other. And sometimes, sometimes we are the ones who don't have perception, and we need to slow down and think and perceive differently. I guess my point is, I wish it didn't say fools in there. I wish that it said uh, the way the Greek renders it. Oh, you slow to understand, because that's me. So he was seen of Mary, he was seen of other women, he was seen of Peter. Notice how Paul just kind of lays up the witnesses. In 1 Corinthians 15 again, let me repeat verse 5, he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, and then of all of the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also, as one born out of due time. Paul is laying up, look, there were so many testimonies. There were so many witnesses of his resurrection. And I want to throw two more in. To me, one of the most powerful testimonies of his resurrection are the two guards that fled. Under Roman law, the penalty of leaving your post was often death. So this story is circulating out there, and the Roman nation clearly has access to this story. Why would they allow a story of two Roman guards leaving their post unless there was something to the story? I think the fact that they left their post and they never changed the narrative— seems to suggest that they went through something significant, that they are, in fact, witnesses of the tomb opening, and their absence from their post is a powerful testimony. Now today, we have others who so testify. As an example of those, I want to give you these words from Ezra Taft Benson. He wrote in the First Presidency message in April of 1991, He said, there were witnesses then who saw him. There have been many in this dispensation who have seen him as one of those special witnesses so-called in this day. I testify to you 
that he lives. There is no truth or fact of which I am more assured or more confident than the truth of the literal resurrection of our Lord. And President Benson was not alone. Now, those of us who are not prophets, seers, and revelators doesn't necessarily mean there aren't marvelous manifestations where we can testify that Jesus is a living God and he has manifested himself unto me. Those moments of witnessing of Christ, however they come and whenever they come, will come to all of us eventually in the Lord's own time and the Lord's place. So sometimes perhaps we need to be patient. If I can't say exactly what President Benson has said with those exact words, it doesn't mean I can't testify of Jesus. It doesn't mean I can't testify of the good things that have come into my life today. I can still be a witness of Christ. And President Benson did talk about this. He said, we must be careful as we seek to become more and more godlike that we don't become discouraged and lose hope. Becoming Christ-like is a lifetime pursuit and very often involves growth and change, and it is slow, almost imperceptible. The scriptures record remarkable accounts of men whose lives changed dramatically in an instant, as it were, Alma the Younger, Paul on the road to Damascus, and so forth. But we must be cautious as we discuss these remarkable examples. Though they are real and powerful, they are the exception more than the rule. For every Paul, for every Enos, for every King Lamoni, there are hundreds and thousands of people who find the process of repentance much more subtle, much more imperceptible. Day by day, they move closer to the Lord, little realizing that they are building a godlike life. They live quiet lives of goodness, service, and commitment. They are like the Lamanites, who the Lord said were baptized with fire and the Holy Ghost and knew it not. We must not lose hope. Hope is an anchor to the souls of men. Don't lose hope. The Lord is pleased with every effort, even the tiny daily ones in which we strive to be more like him. Though we may see that we have far to go on the road to perfection, we must not give up hope. President Benson is doing really two things here. He's talking about the reality that individuals have seen the resurrected Lord, but he's also inviting us to continue on the path, not give up hope, and know that these things will come. And so I have patience. It's going to happen according to the Lord's own time and according to his own will. And so for me, I can witness of the spirit I feel when I take the sacrament, the spirit I feel when I hold my grandson in my arms and I look into his eyes, and the feeling I have when I'm with my wife and the remembrance that I have of the covenants that we've made in the temple and the promises in the scriptures. I feel the spirit when I read the scriptures. And for me, that is my witness. For Peter, his witness is he sees the resurrected Lord. Thomas, I think, is a beautiful character in the end of the Gospel of John because we have this, okay, I'm not going to believe unless I can see, and then that beautiful message at the end of John, blessed are they that have not seen and have yet believed, those that have that deep and abiding trust, even though they haven't seen him. They receive the promises as well. I really appreciate President Benson reminding us of that. Now, one thing we can do, all of us, is what Peter learns in the next chapter. That's John chapter 21. 
Jesus once again is gathered with his disciples on the very same beach where he called them. Now, what sets this chapter up is verse 3. Peter says, I go a fishing. I don't know what that meant. I'd like to portray Peter as the same bold Peter that we saw at the end of Matthew, the end of Mark, the end of Luke. But John portrays him as, I go a fishing. So he went back to his boats. In the morning, Jesus stood on the shore. Disciples didn't know. Jesus cries out, children, have you any meat? They answered, no. Cast the net on the right side of the fish and ye shall find. They cast therefore, and now they were not able to draw for the multitude of fish. Now, all of a sudden, is this sounding familiar? Casting the net on the other side and gathering more than we can pull in. Ding, ding, ding. Peter makes the connection and says, this is the Lord. It's the Lord, he says in verse 7. And now this is the Peter I love. Jumping out of the boat, he rushes to him. And now they have this beautiful little scene. Jesus is eating with them. They bring in the fish that he caught, and they actually count them. It's significant that they count them. It's a large load. Now Jesus has a moment with him and says, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? The assumption most of us make is that he's pointing to the fish. He's pointing to his occupation. He's pointing back to what Peter left. Do you love me more than these, I think, fish? More than what you went back to? Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. Then Jesus responds, feed my lambs. Then he says a second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. And he responded the same way, feed my sheep. He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? At this point, I'm going to pick up Elder Holland's comments where he told this exact story, but I'd really like to continue with his words. From October 2012 General Conference. By now, surely Peter is feeling truly uncomfortable. Perhaps there is in his heart the memory of only a few days earlier when he had been asked another question three times, and he had answered equally emphatically, but in the negative. Or perhaps he began to wonder if he misunderstood the master teacher's question. Or perhaps he was searching his heart, seeking honest confirmation of the answer he had given so readily, almost automatically. Whatever his feeling, Peter said for the third time, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. To which Jesus responded, and here again I acknowledge my non-scriptural elaboration. That's from Elder Holland again. Perhaps something like this. Then, Peter, why are you here? Why are we back on this same shore by these same nets having this same conversation? Wasn't it obvious then and isn't it obvious now that if I want fish, I can get fish? What I need, Peter, are disciples, and I need them forever. 
I need someone to feed my sheep and save my lambs. I need someone to preach my gospel and defend my faith. I need someone who loves me, truly, truly loves me, and loves what our Father in heaven has commissioned me to do. Ours is not a feeble message. It is not a fleeting task. It is not hapless. It is not hopeless. It is not to be consigned to the ash heap of history. It is the work of Almighty God, and it is to change the world. So, Peter, for the second and presumably last time, I am asking you to leave all of this and to go teach and testify, labor and serve loyally until the day in which they will do to you exactly what they did to me. Then turning to all the apostles, he might as well have said something like this. Were you as foolhardy as the scribes and Pharisees, as Herod and Pilate? Did you, like they, think that this work could be killed simply by killing me? Did you, like they, think the cross and the nails and the tomb were the end of it all, and each could blissfully go back to being whatever you were before? Children, did not my life and my love touch your hearts more deeply than this? End quote from Elder Holland. And that's how the Gospels end, with that question. Will you join him? Will you feed his sheep and love his lambs and do the work that he has called all of us to do? His death was not the end of his work, nor was the apostasy. We live renewed with the commission to save his children. Do you love me? If so, feed my sheep. And with that, we thank you for your time. We will see you next week when we go through Acts chapters 1 through 5. Make it a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.